afternoon. Are you sound as a pound? I'm, 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 I am. Not too bad. How are you? Yeah, uh, I'm really good. There was an incident on the roundabout where I live where uh, I looked, I heard a bang and there was a car on the grass verge facing me and the roundabout goes the other way. At one stage, six police officers turned up and an ambulance. So quiet. You don't, see, you don't see much of that type of thing at the minute because no one, not meant to go far away. But... No. Yeah. no, and they both looked, oh, I hope the chap is all right. But I tell you what I was doing, Stephen Scragg, while I was watching this come to pass. I was listening to you. Yeah. Because you were talking about your books with these football times, a motley crew of folk on these oh, football yeah. times. Um, and I thought it, before the, the time when we discussed your two books, uh, which are, just remind me what they are and um, why they are on pitch publishing. Uh, they are A Tournament Frozen in Time, about the Cup Winners' Cup, and they are Where the Cool Kids Hung Out, about the UEFA Cup, or the UEFA Cup, as, as we used to call it back in the day. And uh, it was on pitch because um, I was actually talking to them about another book, which I'm still to finish. Um, and we'd done a podcast for these football times. We did a, a little mini podcast series about the glory days of uh, the European competitions as was. So it was the, the Cup Winners' Cup, the UEFA Cup, and the European Champions' Cup. Not the Champions League, completely different thing. Yep, the European Cup. Uh, yep, the European Cup as was. And they went down really well. And Will Sharp, fellow senior writer for these football times, part tongue-in-cheek, had said, uh, you need to put a Cup Winners' Cup book on your to-do list. We laughed. And then the more I thought about it, the more it made sense because it was the 20th anniversary of the abolition of it. So within that, pitch came back to me, uh, said, yeah, we like the idea of that book, but you know, maybe better closer to, to a date when it's relevant. I had another publisher who was interested in that, so we were back and forth over that. And then I said, well, I've got another on the drawing board anyway about the Cup Winners' Cup. What do you think about that one? Uh, 20 years since it ended. And they were just, yeah, do it without, without seeing a word. They were up for it. They loved the idea of it. And then that was it. And then once the, the Cup Winners' Cup one came out and it was well received, it, it made it to the shortlist of the Football Book of the Year. For which, congratulations, um, who beat you? Oh, it's got to annoy me now. The book is called Ultra. Oh, and yeah, it's Tobias Jones's book about Italian. Tobias Africa. Jones. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, so, yes, it, it was a worthy, a worthy winner. And, and I was amongst good company in the, in the runners-up section. Uh, even Jonathan Wilson couldn't win it this year. He, he was he was amongst us, was riffraff. And I think a, a kind of uh, bracketed myself there as being the, you know, understandably, uh, almost like the, the Bell and Sebastian to everyone else's Oasis and Blair. And, oh, hey, and come Man on. Street Preachers when it, when it came to the, when it came to the, uh, the Brit Awards for the books. And, and remind me who won that year? Bell and Sebastian. They, they beat Steps, oh, didn't oh, they? But, Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, to be honest. It was, it was a fan vote. Awesome. I don't want to get too sidetracked. Um, but yeah, Bell and Sebastian won a fan vote because I think it was Radio 1 listeners really got behind them and they won that particular year, which I think was 1999. Um, oh, I see you more as the Carl Zeiss Jaina of that short list. I, I have no idea if I've got that right because I've never heard it said. <laughs> Carl Zeiss Jaina. Zeiss Jaina. Uh, where, yeah. where were they based? Uh, the city's Yana and um, Carl Zeiss are a company. They, I think it's electronics, possibly. Yeah. Uh, the old East German clubs tended to be have an affiliation 
to one industry or another. Hence, you know, you used to get locomotive Leipzig. You know, some of them were associated to the corridors of power. You know, uh, the Stasi were notoriously had a hand in Dynamo Berlin. So, yes, Carl Zischer, I'm, I'm sure it's something to do with electricals, electronics mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. Uh, and it's we'll talk about it more in depth in the second half of this Football Library radio show, which, drumroll, you are the 100th person to whom I've spoken if I separate the late Vicky Orweiss and Ian Ridley, which I did because Vicky couldn't speak, so I got her uh, widow to speak on her behalf, so I treat her individually. Uh, so you're number 100, so it oh, means nothing awesome. at all. I feel like there should be like uh, I don't know some kind of crescent of balloons or something and 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 party pops. I do have a balloon that I can pop, but I don't think the listener oh. would would appreciate. So would just, appreciate it. Just imagine that. Although I'm also speaking on the day that I'm becoming a brother again. My dad, who is 62, um, is having a fifth child. Uh, I'm just waiting oh, for confirmation of that. It's, so, so it's a very exciting and impressive day. It's the 17th of February, uh, the day after Dean Holden has been sacked by Bristol City. Do you care about Bristol City's ongoings, given uh, that Stephen Lansdowne is masterminding their rise to the top of the elite football? As, as, a, as, a, as a football fan in general, yes. You know, it always, always uh, of interest. You know, uh, Bristol City... Are just about on my radar from from childhood. I remember them just sneaking out of the first division in 1980. That was kind of like 79-80 was my first seriously kind of sat up and took note. I, I knew of football because it was just omnipresent in our house. Uh, my dad's a huge fan. I can't remember the time when I wasn't running around in a football kit of one description or another as a kid. Um, but 79-80 was the first time that I consciously sat and watched Match of the Day or, you know, our regional ITV version of it kickoff. You know, 79-80, you know, all those teams that were, were in the first division between around about 79-80 and, I don't know, maybe 85, 86-ish, something like that, mm-hmm. late 80s anyway. I always feel like they should be back at some point. The goal is that they will go up to the top division and they've got this new stadium and they're being bankrolled, but... You can't lose seven games in a row, including a 6-0 tanking by my team, who finished a, a hugely distant second in the 82-83 First Division. What was it like living in uh-huh. Liverpool in the early 1980s? Because you had the best football team in the country. Just a pick of talent. And Who was your favourite Liverpool player at the time? Favourite Liverpool player um, would always be the default of Kenny Dalglish. But everyone loved Kenny Dalglish, but then would have kind of like a, an other favourite. Mm. So, you know, Kenny Dalglish was a given, but then you know, I was a huge fan of Terry McDermott. Um, oh. You know, he, he, he left after the early exchanges of 82 83, but, you know, uh, the goals that he scored, there was one in particular against Aberdeen uh, at Pitt Audrey in the European Cup, and it's a, a great run that he makes, diagonal run, and, and it's a, like a, a lob over Jim Layton on the run but it's the only goal of the game and it was a massive game as well it was a massive clash because it was Liverpool weren't doing well domestically Aberdeen with the rising force in Scotland uh, upsetting Celtic and Rangers and, and, and a lot of people thought that Aberdeen would pull off the results so they had a, a young a maverick manager by the name of Alex Ferguson whatever happened to him we, we might talk about him later <laughs> oh yeah I mean he's, he is relevant to one of the books I suppose yeah this is the Football Library radio show and I do point you towards the lob 
which is a podcast from These Football Times. Uh, and there's two of them. One of them discusses your first book. One of them discusses your second book. And it would be remiss of me not to mention Stuart Horsfield, who recently arranged his books on his shelves. And I gave him a tip uh, by saying uh, you should arrange them by the Dewey Decimal System. Uh, so you should do kind of history, psychology, art, and then the 900s should just be memoir. I think your books, let me just consult the football library shelves, because your two books are in, it could be the 300s is where they are, because they deal with European football and thus geography. Uh, No, they're in the 900s, history and geography, 920 is memoir. So they're both there in the football library. And as part of this show, you do get a laminated football library card with Brian Glanville's face on it. You can swap it for a more Liverpool-centric author. Uh, Brian Glanville is is more than applicable, more than applicable. The, the doyen of you know, especially Italian football and his, his knowledge of Italian football and, and the World Cup, you know, an absolute legend of the, of the written the written genre. I'm hopeful of talking to him close to his ninetieth birthday in September of this year, twenty twenty one. Oh, spectacular! Uh, and the football library informally is the Brian Glanville football library because without him. None of us would do anything because he was the one. We had reportage, as you know, but Glanville was the first football critic. He raised football literature and criticism to a level that everyone followed. Would Glanville's words have peppered your two books? I, I, didn't, take, I, didn't, I didn't do much in the way of quoted through my books. It's, it's more of a, a kind of the, the ramble of, uh, through, through the eyes of a, a kid who watched the games on sports night, a midweek sports special. Or tuned into various radio stations to be able to pick up the commentary, you know, crackly, crackly commentary down the down yogurt pot and piece of string. <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I, I don't tend to kind of like. Uh, it sounds a bit wrong, but to, to bring kind of like other people's thoughts into it clouds. I found it clouds the the vision in the end. So it, it ultimately ends up being uh, set up for the best of intentions, but it just ends up to be my social commentary on, on, on a given subject. Hey, it's got your name on the cover. Do whatever you want. And one of the best authors or artists have the idiosyncratic style that takes the reader with you. Uh, and it got to the, a stage where I'd read too much Henry Winter, too much Matthew Syed, because you know the style, you know the kind of sentences. You just need to take a break. It's like when you listen to lots of David Bowie and think, I can't listen to Bowie anymore, I'll try Springsteen. Or yeah. Oasis, and you, you listen to Blur and Pulp, and then you hear Oasis fresh again. Uh, was there a soundtrack to writing your books? Because they do cover the period of the great era of recorded music, 1960 through 1997, 98. Where the Cool Kids Hung Out was very much written to the tune of The Killers at Glastonbury, um, oh. repetitively. Uh, because there was a bit of homeschooling going on at the time as I was getting that over the line. So to cocoon myself from the homeschooling, um, it, it was it was the killers at Glastonbury that was uh, that was doing it at the minute for the for the trilogy ending one. Uh, it's much more eclectic. It's been everything from you know, KLF, a bit of um, oh, very much the Pixies, a lot of, a lot of the Pixies, okay. and yeah, the Ten Thousand Maniacs and all sorts. So yeah, if, if music is dictating the books, then yeah, it's it, it's going to be an eclectic. Uh, trilogy ending book on the European Cup. Oh, wicked. Uh, can you tell us when that's out? Later in the year. Um, I've not got a definitive release date for that yet, but uh, if it ties into the to the first two, then 
the first was a September release, the second an October release, so, so maybe, maybe towards the autumn. There is Champions League football tonight as we speak, but this will be the European Cup, so you'll finish with Marseille in the mid-90s? Barcelona. Barcelona. It, it will, it will. Barcelona in 92 was the last you know, uh, one to be embossed with the European Cup, but within that, it, it had the clammy paw of the Champions League upon it because it was the first one that introduced the group stages. So it was a, it was a bit of a dry run for the, for the launch of of the newly embossed Champions League for 92-93. Mm. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll be going up to 91-92, but then there'll be a chapter at the end that will will essentially be a, a character assassination of the Champions League. But, I mean, within that, you know, as a Liverpool fan, of, you know, I, I've got great joy out of the Champions League as well. So, you know, I, I will tip my hat to an extent, but, you know, the European Cup was far, far more, far more evocative, had so much more character. Than the uh, than the laminated Champions League. Does it have a title? Book three. Uh, I've got a subtitle for it, uh, but I've not got the main title for it yet. Uh, the so sub- I'm still working on that. The subtitles of your book so far are "Wonderful Randomness" and "Chic yes. Years," which again sound like album titles. I think I want to, that was almost a killer's album title. "Wonderful Randomness." Fun fact about the Pixies: Do you know where Gil Norton, their producer, was from? Oh, I don't. I don't know. Liverpool. Good man. Good man. Isn't that unbelievable? That is that is pretty that is pretty cool. I like I like that. I love stuff like that because it's, it's like um, Courtney loves Spencer. Spent a bit of time in Liverpool when she was uh, in, in her late teens and stuff like that. Wow. Blondie were, were 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 quite attached to Liverpool in their early pre pre record deal days and yeah, the, 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 the Eric's uh, yeah, yeah you know was a was a great great music venue. It went before my time, you know, but I always remember the adverts in the Liverpool Echo and, and the band names and, yeah, you know, Eric's just was this this magnet for the for the alternative music act. It was uh, an under-celebrated venue, I would say. Wasn't um, that where the Crucial Three came out, Dorothy Collum and Echo and the Bunnymen? It was, it one. was. Uh, Joy, Joy Division were, were, you know, very much players there. Yeah, that, all that, that, Julian Cope and all of those... But yes, no. The Joy Division uh, took legs at Eric's. Uh, they they used to tip up and be awful, apparently. And then there was this this epiphany because uh, I can't remember who it was. Maybe Ian McCulloch, possibly Pete Wiley, mentioning them one time in an interview, saying that people used to roll their eyes on Joy Division. And, and it's not that they came over from Manchester, you know. The, it, it was just that they weren't all that good. Yeah. And then suddenly they just. They just blossomed out of absolutely nowhere. They went from nothing to kind of like, whoa, what, what, what's, what's gone on here? Yeah, Eric's is, you know, one of those places that's not, I don't think, well, all that well known outside of the confines of Liverpool, but it's a, you know, it's a legendary, uh, much lamented, lost musical venue as far as the city of Liverpool is concerned. First time I was in Liverpool, I went to the Doch uh, to have a look around the Beatles Museum. And I think the book I took with me was Paul DeNoyer's book about the city of Liverpool. And he was talking about, obviously, the cavern and the 60s scene, and then Eric's and the early 80s scene, contrasting that with all the policies in the 1980s that I won't bring up, because it's, just, it's, it's worse than disgusting, actually. And it's testament to the city that after knockback, after knockback, after knockback, Liverpool is, has that regeneration, and you, do you still live there? No, I'm, I'm out in the hills of, of Lancashire now. I've still got family there and a season ticket holder when pandemic times 
uh, aren't aren't around. But um, uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm yeah, out in the hills, out in the out in the green hills now. I I spent five years in Edinburgh, and Liverpool is very much village city. It's got that vibe of everyone knows everyone. There's a pub on every corner, and then these two massive football stadia, which have experienced masses of European football. We'll talk about in the second half. I just wanted to ask you this question. Who's better, Gerard Ullier or Jurgen Klopp? And you can answer that however you want. Jurgen Klopp. Uh, you know, every, everyone who, who passes through Liverpool, the vast, you know, not, not everyone, but there's, there's loads of, of characters that have left an imprint uh, and Ullier left an imprint. He, he either pointed the club in the direction that it is it finds itself today. He shifted it from the the old kind of spy, the old Spice Boys and, and Roy Evans is you know, great you know his, his side played some wonderful beautiful football but you know just didn't have that killer instinct to, to go that extra mile uh, and within that who, uh, Evans had tried to kind of like bring the past back to life uh, just as a, an era when you know you're looking at Arsene Wenger and, and, and you know even Graeme Souness when he, he tried to implement you know changes that he'd seen in Serie A and stuff like that so Julio came along, and, and you know all of the uh, the blueprint for kind of like looking after yourself, and, and you know it's like the great line to Stephen Gerrard. You know why, why go to a nightclub on a Saturday night? Play your career, you can go and buy as many nightclubs as you want. You know he instilled that kind of professionalism. It's not to say that Evans wasn't professional, but you know the the, the 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 concept of the blind eye being turned for three days a week while the players get pissed and then come back, and you know if you do it on a Saturday, then everything's fine. You know, that that was no longer applicable by the time the late nineties came along. So Julier changed the mindset of that next generation of player beyond that Spice Boys era that would have been easy to influence that era. So, you know, had, had that generation continued to do what they were doing. You look at Jamie Carragher, you know, uh, you know Julier completely changed the direction of Jamie Carragher's career, Stephen Gerrard and, and, and all of those. But the thing about Jurgen Klopp is that there's so many parallels to him. Uh, to Bill Shankly, yeah, uh, Bill Shankly kind of like sixty, sixty years. What are we now? Sixty years. Yeah, sixty years. Yeah. 60, over, over sixty years since he walked through the doors of the club as manager, uh, and his ethos, his principles are still relevant today. And not just Liverpool. I think many football clubs and and, and the sport itself. Uh, you know, everything that that Shankly did was grounded in. Hard work and and a, and a kind of per, not a party political but a, a personal socialism that everyone pulls in the same direction and everyone gets a reward you know uh, the, the same share of the reward you know everything was was to be balanced and you know everyone mattered you know that that hackneyed phrase of kind of like the uh, the cleaner and the and the canteen staff meaning just as much as the star players uh, and clappers kind of regenerated that he's you know it was still there it, it, you know it, it remained uh, an element of the club but almost like a picture postcard but you know Klopp has seriously brought into it and you know he very much relies on his team you know he's not a one-man band he will listen to all the advice being given to him and, and points of view and then he calls the final shot and that's exactly what it was like in Bill Shankly's time he would listen to Bob Paisley would listen to Joe Fagan Ronnie Moran Ruben Bennett, all of them, and, and then he would come to his decision. He would take it all on board and, and then move forward with whatever he felt was the right way to go. And Jurgen Klopp does exactly the same. You know, he, he, He's been big enough to put his hands up and say, I wasn't 
entirely convinced that Mo Salah was the right player for us, but the more that he spoke to the the people that he surrounds himself with, uh, you know, the more he bought into it. So he bought into the vision of of his of his you know of his coaching staff, of his cabal. Uh, to the point that he said, "Yeah, let's go for it," and, and it's paid massive dividends. You know, he could have been stubborn. Uh, you know, Brendan Rodgers, you know, fine tactician and, and, and a visionary himself, but very stubborn. You know, he, he was notorious with not seeing eye to eye with what was often referred to as the the transfer committee. Mm. You know, he wanted the final say in absolutely everything. He wanted he wanted to oversee absolutely everything, and Klopp's not like that. You know, he delegates, and he's happy to to hand. Know autonomy to 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 his generals, and you know he listens to Michael Edwards and and all of that. You know he'll take everything on board and and come up with the right decisions. Yeah, what's German for boot room? I know room is Raum. I don't know what boot is for German. Uh, Anthony uh, Quinn wrote a great book which came out last year, in which there is a chapter comparing Shankly and Klopp. I don't know if you've read that book. Who's this? Sorry, Anthony Quinn. He's a novelist. Oh but... no, I've not, I've not I've not read this one. I'm currently reading Bob Holmes' book, which is. You know, a very good one that does something very similar. Uh-huh. The thing with Klopp is that I, I, I genuinely believe it got to a point with Liverpool after 30 years without a league title. And although Benitez and Rodgers came very, very close to it, the fact that they didn't, I think it had got to a point, I don't think anyone other than Jurgen Klopp could have broke that spell. You know, And this is why, for me, he has that you know added element of importance more than you know some other very, very good managers that did very important things for Liverpool. Yeah. Before I ask you your best eleven, you know who Liverpool's next manager is going to be, and it is quite unbelievable that as we speak, Rangers are unbeaten in in the SPL this season. So, is there a general feeling amongst Liverpool fans that when Steven Gerrard does become manager, it will be a continuation rather than a revolution? Not a clue, <laughs> to be honest. Absolutely not a clue. There, um, you know, happy that he's doing well. I still like to see him. You know, uh, out there doing other jobs as well before coming any 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 chance coming to Liverpool. I'm sure. You know, the thing is with, with Gerard is that when he, if if and when he comes to Liverpool, it's that danger of trying too hard because it is Liverpool. But there's another midfielder I'd, I'd love to see as Liverpool manager before Gerard does, uh, and that's Xavi Alonso. Oh uh, yes, yeah. The, the thinking, the thinking man's midfielder. Uh, you know, absolutely adored him as a player. One of my all-time favourite midfielders. Uh, his vision for a pass and a through ball, the way that he read the game. You know, he, he, he just saw it in, in angles that not many others have in, in, in any coloured shirt, let alone a Liverpool shirt. Uh, the only one that I can compare him to in, in a Liverpool shirt in my watching, my viewing time, conscious viewing time, would be Jan Mulby. Mm-hmm. Jan Mulby was another one of those that could pick out. So you know, it's the way that he could wait to pass and you know judge exactly how much pace would be needed on it to be the perfect pass for you know for, for whoever he was angling it to. And Javi Alonso had that. Uh, he was a joy to watch. He came to Liverpool as a as a, a, a early twenties, and by the time he went, he was about twenty six, I think he was. So you know, Real Madrid and, and Bayern Munich got the more polished version of him, but we got the one that was the, the one that was growing. You know, into into himself, uh, and he was he was wonderful to watch. I think he'd be. A, I think he's going to be a wonderful manager. I'm very taught Stephen Gerrard a thing or two. Maybe a Gerrard and Xabi Alonso partnership to kind of the new boot room. Wouldn't that work? Because no one man can't run a football club, 
Zabi can take some of the training sessions. Gerard can deal with the bringing players through as well. But the future does look phenomenally sparkling, especially in the new Melwood, where lots of young players... And we've seen this year, um, Elliot's gone on loan, but Curtis Jones, the two Phillipses... The future's bright. I think Liverpool are doing all the right things. The ownership is great. Uh, I talked to Chris Bascom, who um, was very reticent to tell me about the people he'd upset during the Hicks and Gillette years. But again, to Liverpool's credit, these two, I almost used a very rude word, uh, these two human beings came over and they were laughed out of town. Um, And yet, there are plans for Project Restart and to have Liverpool and Man U separate from the Premier League, that doesn't bode well for competition. Uh, no, it doesn't. I think a European Super League is inevitable, whether that's just a rejig of the Champions League to make it resemble more of a, a European Super League. I think I think if they, I wrote an article for these football times a year or two ago on, on the concept of a, a European Super League and that if done correctly, it could... You know, regenerate domestic football to an extent. I think if you had, you know, if you did away with the Champions League as such and, and replaced it with, you know, a European Super League of sixteen teams, which means a thirty-game season. Um, if that was married with a domestic league, a domestic Premier Top Premier League of, of sixteen teams, again a thirty-game campaign. That's a sixty-game season, which is roughly around about what you know the the top teams will have now when they go far in competitions. Um, you know, reduce the domestic cups down to the FA Cup. Uh, you know, there, there would be a way of balancing it where the big teams get the European Super League, yet, you know, there's the still a, a domestic tilt to them. And if they have to go and do that, then great, that's fine. You know, I, I think the fact that you will be stretched in a European Super League in the middle of the week uh, and then asked to play, you know, away, away at Leeds on, on the Saturday, the following Saturday, then. You know, suddenly the domestic picture might become a, a lot more appetising. Uh, you know, you, you're not going to get that 15, 20 points uh, runaway lead title. Uh, certainly, you know, the, 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 there's a chance of variation there. I think I think that's what kills a lot of modern football, certainly at domestic levels. Because when you're looking at Bayern Munich winning eight Bundesliga's on a row, uh, Juventus nine, Serie A's in succession, yep. uh, PSG. Nine. Celtic nine, you know, yeah. it's not not even been a two horse race while Celtic while Rangers have had to regenerate. Um, you know, the, all of these leagues, you know, have, have had these these teams that just win it season after season after season, and it's it's horrendous. You know, to, that, that concept that a league. I, I mean, I've, I've tweeted tongue in cheek before first day of the season, Bayern Munich win four 0 against Hoffenheim. You know, with with such simplicity, the Bundesliga surely won. You know, there's 33 games still to play, but you know it's over before it's even started. Um, you know, anything of a European nature that would stretch the biggest teams domestically, I think, has to be a positive. Uh, you know, the the best eras of football have been the most competitive ones. Uh, it's mad to think that like the 1960s uh, in Eng- the English First Division, there were eight different league champions, there were eight different winners of the FA Cup. Uh, even in the seventies, when Liverpool start to, to to dominate, you know they only won four out of the ten titles of the nineteen seventies. Uh, you know there's still a variation. The first four titles, the nineteen seventies, won by four different teams. You know even the last three first division titles ever won 
uh, before the, the inception of the Premier League were won by three different teams yeah. uh, and then you looked at the Premier League and say well it, it was being won hand over fist by Manchester United and on the down years that they uh, let it go uh, you know we had the one off Blackburn but it, it tended to be Arsenal then then, then Abramovich came and, and made Chelsea interested but it's only in the last couple of years you know we won it last season Man City have won a few uh, Leicester's incredible title win you know, suddenly, since Manchester United stopped winning it, uh, in a way, and I don't mean that, that in, in, a, in a derogatory term, it's just the way it's landed, mm-hmm. is that suddenly it's a lot more competitive. I mean, what we had four or five different titles, Liverpool, Chelsea, Man City, Leicester, you know, four, four different title winners in the last five seasons. Uh, and, and that's a, a, the type of competition that the Premier League could, uh, could only dreamt of like a decade and a half ago. Uh, anything that, that pushes that sense of competition is can can only be a good thing for me. And 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 yes, a European Super League's always going to have that sense of foreboding about it. And if you're going to take teams away and just simply drop them into a European Super League and saying, "Well, you're just not participating in domestic football anymore," then that that's just uh, you know the end the end of the end of football in so many respects. Top top level football at least. Uh, but for me. You know, if, if you can balance the two, you know, I, I, th- I think there's a, a great deal of hope there for the for the rest of football domestically to be able to do things. You know, when you when you're looking at a mad a mad situation where what have Tottenham won since '91, one one or two league cups. You know, for a club their size, that's that's insane. Mm-hmm. You know, Man- Everton haven't won anything since '95. You know, th- these are massive, significant football clubs that you know you, you're talking over a quarter of a century since Everton won something. You know, anything that can eradicate that type of situation can only be a good thing. Well, for Watford's perspective, in the last 18 months, Watford have beaten Man United, beaten Liverpool, almost beaten Arsenal, um, and yet we've Wickham needed a disallowed goal for us to get a point at Adams Park. But from Watford's perspective, we take, we've got four ex-Man United players in our 11, uh, and an England international who couldn't get through at Chelsea. So Watford are going there and thereabouts, you want excitement, come to the Championship or League Two. But we we must speak about Liverpool, who I think have played in the top division for 60 years. Was it the 60s they went down briefly? Uh, 54 they went down, that was the last time, and they came back 62. So, wow, we were coming up to 60 years. Yeah. Almost since, since we returned, yeah. Yeah, it's a long time since you have seen... And of course, as Manchester United did when they went down, that you would Liverpool would have filled the away end and more besides. But with the proviso that you can't name anyone from the Bosman era, so I want you to focus on players from before 1995. Can you name your Liverpool eleven? And if you want to reference any piece that you've written for these football times about the likes of Mark Lawrence and Alan Kennedy and Ray Kennedy and Gary Ablett and Howard Gale and Jimmy Case and Patrick Berger, you're welcome to do so. I could, I could go proper proper shop window with this one. Uh, definitely Ray Clements, and there is an article on these football times I've written about Ray Clements. You know, just the greatest Liverpool goalkeeper. He's, he's the benchmark still now of every other Liverpool goalkeeper is measured by. The, the number of clean sheets he kept was incredible. Uh, a wonderful goalkeeper who, who started in his youth career as an outfield player and, and became a goalkeeper of convenience as such but the fact that he'd been an outfield player and used to love playing outfield in the five-a-sides in training at Liverpool uh, and, and would help well, he'd hold his own as well uh, a, a great believer in that your goalkeeper and your defenders 
should be able to translate to other positions on the pitch. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not for shot stopper goalkeepers, for instance, who, who won't come out of the six yard box. You know, it's akin to you know the old baseline tennis players yeah. uh, being just being boring. quite boring and just slugging slugging the ball at the back back of the course all the time. You know, your goalkeepers need to command your penalty area and beyond. And this is the type of thing that Ray Clements did. Um, you know, he was he was trained within that. Tommy Lawrence did it before him. Uh, you know, and, and, and it, it just allowed you to compress the the play higher up the pitch. Uh, and Clements was just wonderful, absolutely wonderful. You know, he's prone to the odd mistake here and there, like anyone else. But you know, he'd stop make, make saves that. No, no one else could. You know, he was he was a wonderful natural-born goalkeeper, but starts as an outfielder. Right back is a bit more tricky. Uh, Phil Neal would be the obvious one. And again, there's an article on these football times I've written about Phil Neal, uh, but he's got a competition there because you know even all the way up to Rob Jones was a wonderful, wonderful right back. Uh, Steve Nichol was wonderful at right back, but would often be co-opted out of right back to yeah. go and cover other positions, and he could play anywhere across the back line. Anywhere across the midfield, good Steve Nichol. Uh, but yes, Phil, Phil Neal, I think, for that one. You um, have. I'm glad you realised that this is just an opportunity to point people to the These Football Times pieces because there are a lot, a lot of them. I put them all into an 87-page document for the ones that I wanted to read in particular. And yeah, the Phil Neal, is, he's won the most silverware. He's like the Ryan Giggs of Liverpool. Oh, he's incredibly... He's, he's kind of Liverpool's Maldini in that respect. Maldini, you know, yeah, that's European, a better example. Four, you know, four European Cups. You know, uh, yeah, incredible. He was, you know, and he could use a football as well. You know, he'd score as an outfield player. He'd, he'd, he'd you know, ghost in on the on the right-hand side and suddenly, you know, ball would be swung over to that post who's, who's, who's on the end of it. You know, it'd be Phil Neal. You know, that, that, that kind of like slide of the ball into the corner and, you know, very measured in, in his approach. He could play centre-back when, when asked. Uh, his early days at Liverpool were played at left-back because Tommy Smith would, was playing right-back. So, you know, he, he was quite adaptable to uh, you know, a dead-eye shot from the penalty spot. Uh, so, yes, Phil, Phil Neal just about edges it, although, you know, massive, massive uh, nods towards Steve Nicholl and Rob Jones. Uh, left-back, uh, Jim Beglin. A horrendous, horrendous leg break away at Everton in the League Cup quarter final in eighty six, eighty seven. But he was a beautifully balanced left sided player, uh, and again another that uh, started out as a left sided midfielder and was asked to cover left back in the absence of an injury, absence of Alan Kennedy, and did the job that well that he he took the role off him. You know, he ended he ended Alan Kennedy's career at Liverpool basically. And he was, you know, attacking left back. And, and the thing was that he was mid twenties, maybe, uh, yeah, mid mid twenties ish when he when he broke his leg and you know never never played for Liverpool again because he recovered from the leg break and then had a, a, a serious ligament injury. And if, had it not been for the injuries, he, he'd have been Liverpool's left back well into the mid nineteen nineties. Uh, you know, he'd, he'd have elapsed into the uh, into the Premier League era. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was. He was. He was a wonderful left back. Was, was Jim Beglin? He was our last proper left back until Andy Robertson. Between Beglin and Robinson, we we Robertson we either had makeshift uh, left backs. You know, so Steve Nichol covered at left back. Bob Jones could cover at left back. Our, our best left backs between uh, Beglin and, and Robertson were generally very good right backs who were just asked to fill the job. 
Fabio Aurelio, you know, was a good player, but he was injury prone. Uh, so yes, you know, uh, Jim Beckwith would, right. would be the left back. Uh, Centre backs, absolutely spoiled for choice there. Alan Hansen certainly, probably Mark Lawrence. You know, the, the two the two are synonymous to one another, but they only actually played as a centre back pairing for about two and a half years. Uh, his first couple of seasons at Liverpool, Phil Thompson was still playing. You know, he'd, he'd cover at centre back here and there, but again, another that could pop up at left back. He could play in midfield. So Lawrenson would often cover a multitude of positions. You know, when when injuries and suspensions dictated, and he did the same type of thing in his last few years as in Liverpool shirt, uh, especially after Jim Beglin's leg break. So and Gary Gillespie came in and and, and played very well. So. It was a case of Gillespie and, and Hansen formed a partnership and Lawrenson just filled in wherever was needed. But Lawrenson was, was wonderfully the speed that he had and he, he, he was the stereotypical telescopic leg. You know, that phrase of the telescopic leg of being able to nick the ball away. He'd slide in from about two two or three yards away from a player and, he, and, and his, his, his vision for the ball and his timing was impeccable. I don't, I don't remember him giving much away in that respect. And for Hanson, it was just he, he he was just so elegant on the ball, you know, and Scottish version of Franz Beckenbauer. You know, he could yeah. carry the ball out of defence. Again, another that played as a youngster in midfield, so was was very adept at playing the game. It wasn't just a, a case of stopping the the opposition. He could play the ball. So yes, you know, the, again, you know, goalkeepers that could play outfield, central defenders that were central midfielders in a previous a previous life. Uh, you know, this all lent to itself this 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 way that Liverpool play the yeah. ball out of defence in a, in a continental manner. And I am positive that Hanson and Lawrenson and Gillespie will all feature in this third book alongside uh, a lot of the total Vatval players of Ajax and that Ajax Cruyff dynasty. So I'm looking forward to seeing Liverpool. Yes, here. it's uh, yeah, it's all there. Yeah. You, know, the, the, you know, it's the Real Madrid of the fifties. It's Benfica and Eusebio. Yeah. It's you know, at the minute, I'm just the chat that I'm writing at the minute is about the Milan Giants. It's it's oh, you know, it's, it's Nero Rocco and, and Helena Herrera's Milan and Internazionale sides, and you know, currently writing about the '63 final, which Cesare Maldini is the captain for. Uh, you know, it's a young Gianni Rivera. So yeah, you know the, all of those. I mean, that's the thing about the the competitions is that they have these defined eras uh, where teams will ebb and flow. But there's there's very very clear lines, you know, border lines that you can you can draw. Makes it very easy to write about. Um, we're back to the back yes. to midfield. Yes, let's see your front six. Uh, uh, rattle them off. Uh, the midfield's the the definitely the seventy eight seventy nine midfield. The whole lot of them. It's uh, Sunas, it's McDermott, it's Ray Kennedy, and it's Jimmy Case. You know, right. All of them could mix it. All of them could play the ball. Uh, Jimmy Case had thunderous shot, battled for absolutely everything. Ray Kennedy converted from a, a misfit striker into this silken left-sided midfielder. Uh, you know, Bob Paisley said he was. On, I remember him being on one of those VHS videos and, and saying that uh, of all the players that. Other teams used to inquire about the availability of. Uh, no one was was asked about more than Ray Kennedy was. Uh, you know, he was just a a, a beautiful footballer. Was Ray Kennedy? But uh, you know, his eye for a goal was was absolutely wonderful. He could go box to box. You know, just look up on YouTube if you, you know if you 
the, the goals of Tony McDermott and, and there's a, a stunning one in 1980 against Tottenham in the FA Cup at White Hart Lane which is just an absolute work of art there's the one he gets on the end of in 78 uh, September September 78 at Anfield the 7-0 uh, you know it, it's a move that he starts virtually on the edge of our own six yard box in front of the cop and he finishes on the edge of the Tottenham penalty area uh, with a header from a, a Steve Highway cross and, and, and it, it's a bit like there's a goal Liverpool scored not so long ago against West Ham where West Ham took a corner and it was in the back of the, the West Ham net within about 12 seconds and I think it went through three players and, and about seven passes uh, and, it, and it was it was that type of image this this McDermott goal uh, but there were so many others you know a, a brilliant chip in an FA Cup semi-final against Everton that, that goal against Aberdeen at Pitt Audrey just a litany of, of the most incredible goals a player that was ahead of his time as well you know, he, he wouldn't look out of place now and Sunes who, who just had absolutely everything the, the most complete midfielder uh, yet ever likely to to come across. He, he he was hard. He was strong. He was dirty when he needed to be. Yet he had the the touch of a genius with the ball at his, his feet. You know the, the eye for a pass and, and the pass for that he lays on for Dalglish to the seventy eight European Cup finals. Just a, a one of the most wonderfully crafted passes. So the way the ball comes down for him and the, and the Bruges defenders converge on him. You know, he, he gets it out and, uh, and across the Dalglish to, to dink over uh, Berge Jensen, you know, uh, and, and Sunes was, was, was just metronomic. You know, it's no coincidence that when he leaves, Liverpool really struggle for a year. You know, eventually Steve McMahon comes in, who, who's Sunes light. Of all the players Liverpool struggled to get over, Sunes was, was one of the biggest. Yeah, and Xavier Alonso uh, came 20 years later. And then Russian Dalglish up front, or are there any others? It would have to be Russian Dalglish up front. Uh, I, I love John Aldridge for his, his pure, you know, just eye for the, the right spot. You know, they looked alike, but they, they didn't score alike. They were very different in their approach. You know, Rush used to thrive. For me, it would have to be Ian Rush. If it was Ian Rush, it has to be the, the 80, 81 to 86, 87 version of him. He, he was a different player when he came back from Juventus. Liverpool played two different styles of football. The style of football that Rush thrived on was centrally driven. Uh, we didn't play with wingers. We we had you know, wide midfielders that were tuck in, and, and the fullbacks would overlap. But it it lent a lot. A lot of his game lent on the ball through the middle. That was either led by you know led by Dalglish, uh, Jan Moby, John Walk was another one, uh, and he thrived through a, a rolled ball that he could run into 30, 40 yards from goal and, and to close in on the goalkeeper. So many of his goals were scored in that manner. Uh, Aldridge was different. He was a penalty box poacher. Uh, thrived on balls from out wide and that led into Barnes and, and uh, Ray Houghton playing right and left Peter Beardsley alongside him as well loved that 87-88 side so yes just about Ian Rush but it has to be the first incarnation of him yeah you can have it uh, otherwise John Barnes would have had his, his place uh, and then it's Dalglish isn't it well and Dalglish we can talk about for years but he is a lot of people say he is was the player of the era. Um, I just wonder, when did he leave Liverpool as a player? Oh, he, did he graduate from player to manager? He did, didn't he? Yeah, he yeah. became player-manager, 85, so, and his last game was 1990, or yeah, it was yeah. a, token, a token kind of you know, substitute appearance. He, start, he stopped playing as a, as a, as a real uh, option in the squad at the end of the 86-87 season. 
the the most amazing thing that young fans should know is that John Barnes played for Watford for 10 years. The second he left, that was it for Watford and 25 years in the doldrums. But if it were a squad game, if you needed an Origi, a Shakiri, a Milner, Barnes would have gone to Liverpool in 10 minutes. He would have been at Liverpool in 82. But the fact that in the 80s, you only had squads of 14-15, Liverpool just had the best 15 at the time. And Everton got a bit closer. Ron Atkinson's Man United got close but you were spoiled if you were born in 74 your childhood was spoiled and indeed spoiled by Heisel and Hillsborough and the lack of European football uh, which is what we turn to now 